Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to, to study your word. And the book of Hosea has so many hard-hitting chapters, and tonight's one more of those. And so we just, we, we give you the glory, Lord, as we study your word, and we just pray that you would challenge us and encourage us and help us to take this ancient text and Holy Spirit apply it to our life. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Hosea 11. Uh, looks like I typed it wrong on the page here. Starting in 11, verse 12 to 13, verse 3. And so you can see on the top there, we have entered the final stage of, of the book. So God's people are deceitful. And deceit has a cousin word uh, called deception. And so, uh, yeah, the question came in, are we Mickless tonight? Yeah, uh, our co-teacher Mick, he's going to be out tonight. So he will, he will be like some of you listening to my voice right now on the podcast. Welcome. He'll be listening to the podcast as well. So, this whole book was broken down into God's people are unfaithful. God's people do not know him. God's people are not devoted to him and God's people are deceitful. The book of Hosea is like one gigantic grand jury. It's just indictment after indictment after indictment after indictment. And so we are not at all surprised that after the time of Hosea, the Northern 10 tribes are going to be defeated, destroyed, crispy critters. We're not surprised. It's no one reading this and taking it at face value is going to say, well, gosh, God, that came out of nowhere. No, it didn't come out of nowhere. God's been warning his people and warning his people and warning his people, sending prophet after prophet after prophet. Hosea happens to be up in the north, but there are others in the south. Judah seems to be in a better position than Ephraim, but Judah has their own issues. In fact, they're not going to come away unscathed in our text tonight either. So let's go to, uh, you can see here as the page kind of goes down here, uh, the, the topics are liar, deceiver, dishonest, wicked, and guilty. Gosh, God is just laying into them tonight. All right, liar, 11.12 to 12.2. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. This is God talking here. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day, all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So you have the idea that they're, they're paying some kind of uh, tax or some kind of uh, covenant obligation to Egypt. Oil is going there. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Wow. So um, evidently, we look at the page here, they, uh, their interactions with God are false. So these are people who could logically claim to be God's people, God's special chosen people, the people that God delivered out of Egypt, the ones that God called them to be a royal priesthood, the ones who have been following or having, they've seen God's faithfulness the entire life of their nation up to that point. And 
they could claim anything in terms of faithfulness with God, but their interactions with God, they're false. So they're talking one way, but God sees through it. And God sees their heart and God sees what they're still doing. We talked about this earlier. They're worshiping God, as Daniel pointed out, also worshiping Baal. And yeah, you can't say, well, I'm going to worship the, uh, you know, you worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm not, so basically what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, it's like serve him only. Or there should have commandment number one, you should have no other gods before me. And so Israel's saying, but yeah, but I'm going to have, I'm going to play the field and I'm going to make sure I have this God and then this God and then this God. I'm going to lay bets on various segments of the roulette wheel because maybe one of them will hit. And there's no faith there. That's just kind of like the buffet table approach to God and approach to faith. And that's not showing trust in God. So their interactions with God are false. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. That doesn't sound like a one out. That doesn't sound like, okay, they lied to God once. And yeah, lies are bad. They're obviously evil, but they're not good. This sounds like they've been peppering God with lie after lie after lie, so much so that God can picture himself surrounded by lies. My goodness. Deceit. Wow. Their interactions with God are false. Their devotion is strong but futile. You see, that's one of the things our culture um, likes to say, that sincerity is what matters. You know, if you just believe it sincerely, if you have, if you have sincereness or sincerity to your beliefs, that's really all that matters. Well, logically, you can be sincerely wrong. And that's what we have here. God describes it as the northern kingdom Ephraim or Israel is feeding on the wind. I like uh, driving by, there's a, a sandwich shop that says the smells are free. You know, there's, there's no calories in smells. Okay. You just, you just, you just smell. Okay. You can't, you can't eat a smell. You can't feed on the wind. You can stuff it in your mouth all you want. It's not going to satisfy you. There's nothing there. There's no calories. It's going to make you sick to your stomach. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day. Well, think about it geographically. What's to the east? There's some desert, but that's where all the kingdoms are. You've got to the south and to the west, you've got Egypt. But east, you've got north and east is Assyria. And then beyond that's Babylon. And so the east wind, this east wind, so they're feasting on this. So basically their devotion is strong. They're doing it all day. They're going after the wrong things all day. But just like eating wind is stupid and futile, their devotion is sincere. It's even strong, but it's futile. They're literally chasing after the wrong things. They're going the extra mile to not chase after God. They're instead chasing after anyone else they can. Now, that by itself wouldn't be a big deal, you might say. You would say, well, these people aren't God's people because God's people wouldn't do that. But if you claim to be God's people and you do that, now you're being deceptive. And that's the point. It's a great point. Israel had more faith in Assyria, Egypt, and idols than in God. They worshiped idols instead of worshiping the one who had brought them out of slavery. It's exactly right. Um, yeah, this is despicable. You think, Sandy, you're right, Daniel. This is despicable. Um, their devotion is strong, but 
the devotion was futile. Wow. Those are the kind of things that kind of hit at your heart. It's, it's very tempting to throw yourself in this text and go, well, is that ever mean? Well, their deeds are evil. They multiply falsehood and violence. Never a good thing. That's the problem with the difference between addition and multiplication. Addition, you're dealing with smaller things. Multiplication, now you've taken it to another level. They multiply falsehood. So there's your lies, and they follow up those lies with violence. So their deeds are evil. So their interactions with God are false. Their devotion is strong, but it's futile. Their deeds are evil, and they depend upon others rather than God. They make a covenant with Assyria. All their, their oil is carried away to Egypt. Wow. It's just they're just depending upon everyone else, not God. So what does your life communicate? Any of these things hit home to your heart? They don't have to. I'm not looking for a fight. But I'm asking you to take the word of God and apply it to yourself right now. Interactions with God are false. Maybe you talk a big game, but you never come through. Maybe you say the same guilty prayer every night, but you never do change. You refuse to repent. That one hits hard with me. That was my life. I used to be that way. Maybe their devotion is strong, but it's futile. Maybe they're worshiping the wrong things. Maybe they're worshiping, I don't know. It's like somebody you can tell they're not really in love. They're just in love with being in love. It's like, okay, puppy dog love is cute, but there's nothing really behind it. Is it, yeah, somebody wants more romantic young love or old love? And it's obviously old love. Young love is adorable. Like, oh, look at them. But then you see old love, people who have gone through things and they're still there with each other. That love has scars. <laughs> it's like, that is romantic. Their devotion is strong, but futile. Their deeds are evil. See, if you're claiming to be God's person, if you're claiming to be God's guy or God's girl, and your interactions with God are false, what are you saying about God? That God's the kind of God that's just going to naturally put up with that nonsense? Or that God's going to allow you to believe whatever you want as long as you believe it sincerely? And maybe God's just going to mop everything up at the end? Or God's going to allow you to live however you want? It's like if you say that, if you're depending upon others rather than God, then you're making either God to be a liar or revealing that you are a liar. So what does your life communicate in this first section? Because you do yourself a disservice to study Hosea academically. You have to study it critically and personally, devotionally. It's like, is this ever me? Is this me now? Is there something about me that is this? It's a hard question to ask, especially if you belong to Christ. But it's a question to ask nonetheless. We read God's word. We apply God's word. We ask tough questions of ourselves. Liar turns into deceiver. Still chapter 12. So we left, we left chapter 11. We went into chapter 12. We stay in chapter 12, 3 to 6. And this one, he goes to the original deceiver. In terms of his name, this is Yaakov. This is Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel 
and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the Lord of the God of hosts, the Lord, or Yahweh, is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. You see, young Jacob was a deceiver. His name, you know, it kind of means the grasper, the one who grasped the heel and the one who tries to, you know, to make something out of something like that. And so he was the grasper of situations, you might say, and he ended up being that way. Young Jacob especially was that way. He was a manipulator. He was a deceiver. He had deceit. He got whatever he wanted to get through whatever means he was going to get it. That's the way Jacob did his business, especially as a younger man. And yeah, he got it turned back to him a couple times, but still, he was a deceiver. So stop trying to determine your destiny by manipulation or deceit. So if he's using young Jacob as an example, and you got to understand, this is Israel, literally their namesake. Jacob renamed Israel, the one who struggles. It's like, that is our struggling with God. But Jacob is the manipulator. Jacob is a deceiver. Yes, Jacob ended up being a person of faith, and God used Jacob. And at Bethel, that great moment where he's wrestling with God, and at the very end, God reiterates, hey, I'm the, I'm the God of your, your grandfather, the God of your father, and your God as well, and I'm going to reiterate to you this blessing that is going to come to your people. But Jacob, well, back to our text here, he took his brother by the heel, he strove with God, he sought his favor. So don't stop trying to determine your destiny by manipulation or deceit. So Israel, what did they do? They tried to play the field. They tried to do anything they could to get what they thought they needed to get versus trusting God. They played geopolitical games. Rather than trusting God, they trusted, like we said before, in Assyria. They trusted in Egypt. They went this way, then that way. They literally had this war where they allied with one foreign country to attack Judah who had to ally with another foreign country to make up the numbers. This is crazy, crazy mess. And these are God's people. I mean, seriously, stop trying to determine your destiny by manipulation or deceit. This would also be like the sin of codependence, where you manipulate everything around you to get an outcome. And that outcome probably is selfish. Theoretically, it could not be selfish, but more often than not, it is. Everything has to turn out your way so you control every possible variable to get something. As like, There are people who are like that. But the farther you go down that rabbit hole, the more you realize, the less you actually are trusting God. Because you have to be the one in control. You have to be the one controlling every variable and manipulating every outcome. And when that's present in a relationship, forget about it. Manipulation has no place in a marriage. There's no place in a good friendship. Deceit? Really? No. None of those things belong. Like, if those are present, then boundaries need to come immediately. Now take the best possible relationship, you and God. You want to play that game with God? Israel was. 
So stop trying to determine your destiny by manipulation or deceit. Your hope is only for those who live, verse 6. What's verse 6? So you, by the help of your God, because remember, it's like Jose as a Reformed theologian. Do I have the power to live faithfully on my own? In, oh, on my own, I'm never going to do it. On my own, I don't have the power to live faithfully to God. I will never, ever on my own choose me. I will, excuse me, choose God. I will always choose me, no matter what. Ephesians 2, I am dead in my sins, but God, unless he breathes that life in, on my own, I don't have the power. So I like this. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So return, hold fast, and wait. Return. That word means repent. Your only chance, Israel, only chance is to repent. So what the prodigal son did, he left the pig slop. He returned to his father. That was repentance. He did so at first in his heart when he said, you know what, how many of my father's slaves are eating? And here I am starving with pig stuff. In his heart, he realized, if I go back, I might eat. And then he got up and did it. It was an inside repentance and then an outside repentance. The outside flows from the inside. It always does. Return. Hold fast to love and just. It's like hold fast. That could be taken in a literal sense. What was Jacob doing? I'm holding myself here. He held fast. Remember when he wrestled the angel? He held on. He wouldn't let go until he said, give me a blessing. He held fast to God. Do that again, Israel. Hold fast to God, to love, to justice. These great things that you're not doing. Hold fast to that. And then wait continually for your God. See, people who are control freaks, people who are natural manipulators, people who are naturally codependent or deceitful people who are like that, they are horrible at waiting. Because why wait when I can get the same outcome if I apply my machinations? If I just go about and do my thing, I can get the same outcome, but I can have it quicker. I can have it a little bit more satisfying because I'm the one doing it. That's not waiting on God, is it? When you wait on God, you get vulnerable because God is God and you are not. Trusting is a little scary. Even if you know God's not going to let you down. It's scary because you're not the one to control. You deceive yourself if you say you are in control. Israel's a liar. They're a deceiver. I'm going to scroll the page down here so we can see they're dishonest. Still in chapter 12. I say that because we're going to be in chapter 13. Still in chapter 12, 7 to 10. And here we go to so the world, world of economics a bit. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors that cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Because they recognized he was God, that he truly was Yahweh God. 
in Egypt with all the 10 plagues, proving that all the Egyptian gods and goddesses were, were, were impotent nobodies. And Yahweh was indeed the lone powerful God. I've been your God since Egypt. He's been their God before Egypt. Read the book of Genesis. But he showed them in Egypt that power. I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Sukkot, that, that dwelling in tents. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. They're a liar. They're a deceiver. And they're dishonest. What in the world is going on with the merchant? I'm going to read you something here. Israelite merchants were acting like Canaanite merchants. They used dishonest scales in their business dealings. They had two sets of weights, and they rigged them. They used one, one set of weights as too heavy. They used another set of weights as too light. So the merchant defrauds the people by requiring they put in 110% to balance his heavy weight. So they're paying too much for the product. Or when the merchant sells, he weighs the product using a lightweight. So he gives his customer only 90% of what they deserve. You can imagine buying meat at the store and saying, I want a pound of meat. And so they start putting meat on some, you know, whatever deli ham or whatever they put it on the scale. And you're watching the number go up to the one. And secretly, the guy puts his thumb on the scale in the background. So it makes it heavier. But you're not getting the full pound you're paying for. You're getting maybe 90% of that. And that's how he, he defrauds you. That's what's going on here. They got different weights and different measures. And that's not how God works. Dishonest. What's the perspective of Ephraim here? Their perspective is this. We're rich. We're happy. Life is good. I have all that I want and more. My vats are overflowing. My silos are full of grain. Everybody's happy. I had everything. What sin are you going to find in me? It's like the reversal of Job's three friends. They assume he did something wrong because bad happened to him. So when everybody's fat and happy, Ephraim says, you're not going to find any sin, any iniquity in me. Are you kidding me? Look at all that I have. I'm good. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they can't find in me any iniquity or sin. Yeah, the average person probably can't find sin in you. They can't see your heart. But God can. God knows what's going on within you. That's the perspective of Ephraim. In a sense, we get that as like the background narrative of the Gospels as well. Where something goes wrong, who sinned? This guy or his parents? He was born blind. We get the parable of the, the, the rich guy who had, oh, I got to build more things. How's my grain? You know, my goodness, look at that. Well, life is going really well for me. Yeah. Um, the perspective of Ephraim is I'm fat and happy, so I, I don't have any sin. I'm good, God. God, I'm good. I think we're okay, God, because life is working out well for us, God. God, you know what? You're overdoing it a bit, God, because you know what? I think we're good. Look at me. 
I have all that I want and more. Sin? What are you talking about lies and deception and dishonesty? God, what are you talking about? I think life is working out pretty good. Yeah, you're going to be crispy critters in not too long there, Israel. And all the things you're, you have, are they're going to be gone. The perspective, of, what's the perspective of Yahweh here? It's this. Um, hi, I'm the Lord your God, and I always have been. Uh, I will make you dwell in tents again. You know, back when you were traveling in mobile homes? Yeah, I can do that again. And you're going to be toast. And um, yeah, I, I, I spoke to the prophets. I multiplied visions, all these mighty things. And through the prophets, I gave you parables. It's like, um, you think you're okay because you have wealth and because you have success and that you have no sin because life is working out for you. Well, guess who made life work out and who can make life not work out? I'm calling you to repent and you want to go back to your success? I'm God. I can make you go back to living in tents again. Just like that. How success deceives us. It makes us think we're good. Life is working out for us. It's the great deception. That we have to go after that. We have to find that. And if we find it, we're finally good. Maybe success is not your word. Maybe comfort is your word. Maybe approval is your word. Maybe companionship is your word. Maybe love is your word. Maybe security is your word. I don't know what your word is. But what you do. A text coming in. Because wealth comes from him. Those that had assumed they were walking in righteousness, which they weren't since they made their money through the essentially amounts of the fraud. Yeah, they were frauding people. So they thought they were all good. Then nobody saw what they were doing. And God's like, not, not only am I God, but I can take you this all this all wealth thing you got going on. I'll have you living in your mobile home again. And yeah, so you're not going to pull a fast one on me. Yeah, I don't know what your word is. Success, comfort, love, companionship, um, promotion. I don't know. Approval. Whatever it is, other people's opinion of you, maybe it's your fear and you're, you're tired of being afraid. I don't know. Whatever it is, it deceives us and that everything is okay because we finally have it. That we can live our life for this. And once we get it, we know we've been blessed by God. The problem is you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. It's the same idea again. You could be pursuing something with all of your heart and it could be the wrong thing. If it's a pursuit of self, it's not the pursuit of God. In Deuteronomy 6, nowhere does it say, love yourself with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. No. It doesn't even say love yourself. It says love your neighbor. That's the command. The as yourself is the last part of the sentence. It's loving your neighbor as a command. So this idea that I got to pursue me, I got to find me, I got to just somehow, I got to nail down what my passion is and run after that passion, that there's my meaning of my life. Wrong. That's the meaning of life if you're not God's people. If you're God's people, the meaning of your life is God. Otherwise, you go back to the top. Your interactions with God are false. 
your devotion is strong, but it's futile. Most likely your deeds are going to be selfish and therefore categorically evil. You're depending upon others rather than God, most likely depending upon yourself rather than God. You're trying to determine your destiny by manipulation of some sort. There it is. The perspective of Yahweh is enough already. You either follow me or you're not following me. Your success does not determine anything. It just doesn't. Okay, it determines maybe how tempor temporally comforting you are or what you're going through right now. But we deceive ourselves if success is our marker because when we don't get success, we think that God's against us. When we go through depressing seasons, we go through times where our anxiety kicks our butt, where we can't hardly make it through our day, we're struggling with our bills, we're struggling with our, our sicknesses and our diseases, and we're struggling with our friendships, and we're dealing with all these things. We think God hates us, and there must be a self-fulfilling prophecy that nothing goes right anymore because I don't have success. And we look at other people, we're naturally envious, and we have jealousy. We have all these things we do comparing and contrasting, and we look at life and go, I don't have what I think I should have, and therefore blank. And how you fill that blank is usually not, I'm going to trust in God. Because success has been your God. It was Israel's God, and it's tempting to be our God, especially in America, where we idolize self-determinism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Go west, young man. Take life by the, you know, the horns. It's like, the American way, we prioritize that. And there's nothing wrong with that if it's a means for trusting God. I mean, even the doctrine of, of, of progressive sanctification is the one part of your salvation you have an active role in. You partner with the Holy Spirit. He's the one driving the train, but you know, you're in the front seat too. He expects your faithfulness as he guides you. That's the one part about your entire becoming more like Christ, you actually have a part in. The rest, it's God alone at work. Liar, deceiver, dishonest, wicked, 11 to 14. If there is iniquity in Gilead, I like that if. There is iniquity in Gilead. He's playing with it here. If there's iniquity in Gilead, how do we know that? Book of Judges, remember the potential homosexual rape chapter that we didn't want to talk about? Okay, that was the part of that time, that area. Okay, we've got the Gibeonites. We got now we have Gilead as well. Like, oh my goodness, all these G words, none of them were good. If there's iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. And Gilgal, there's another one. They sacrifice bulls. Their altars are, are like those. And that was Gibeah and Benjamin. That was the, the, the Gibeonites. But we have we have the we have Gilead as well. And in Gilead, they, they thought they had everything figured out as well, but they were still part of this pagan worship. They shall surely come to nothing, and Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Ugh. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. So he's going back to Jacob here. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Who was that prophet? Well, Moses. Moses was a prophet of God. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. You got two G's here, Gilead and Gilgal. Yeah, I was mistaken when I went to Judges. That was Gibeah, Gibeonites. We got infamous like Las Vegas. 
You know, if you're if you're talking about Las Vegas here in America, oh yeah, that's like Las Vegas. Las Vegas has this reputation of, of, of being a sinful city. And you don't have to explain anything. Like, okay, Las Vegas, oh yeah. You know, has that what happens in Vegas, that line. You know, that's what Gilgal had. Gilead. You you notice that Hosea is not enunciating anything here. He's not explaining anything here. He's just name dropping Gilead and Gilgal. And everyone's going, you know, Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You don't have to tell me anything. I know exactly what you're talking about. No explanation needed. You got the idea of self-care versus God's care. What's self-care? Well, it goes back to Jacob. Jacob was all, yes, he had to serve. And he served how many years to get a wife and he got deceived. He got the other ones who had to serve again. Yeah. You know, the deceiver got deceived. It's kind of poetic justice, oh, deceiver, Jacob. And yes, we see God's hand at work, but, but the, the, the analogy here is that everything was driven by Jacob and Jacob's actions and Jacob's actions. And that's the way Ephraim is here. Everything is by their own manipulations, their own issues, their own self-care. Versus coming up out of Egypt. Could they leave Egypt on their own? No, they were slaves. Let my people go. No, for 10 plagues, no, for nine plagues at least. The 10th one, he finally said, okay, get out of here. But he still chased them. That was all God's care. At no point were they doing any self-care to leave Egypt. You could argue that Jacob was caring for himself by serving all those years. In terms of just the analogy, he had efforts, the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Israelites had no efforts, zero. So God, God's saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I sent a prophet to bring you out of, from Egypt. And I guarded you by that same prophet. Jacob did his serving. God's saying, I did this. Self-care versus God's care. What care policy describes you? If you were like Ephraim, if you were like Israel here, you are consumed with yourself. How yourself is perceived. I fight this every day. Do you? I care far too much about how I'm perceived by other people. Do you? I have to fight this every single day. You can't call something a struggle unless you're struggling. It's a struggle. Self-care versus God's care. God's care is trusting. Israel could do nothing but trust God. That's all they could do. Trust and obey. That's all they could do. Jacob, well... He had things he could work on, I guess. He was kind of driven by his own man, you know, just doing his own thing. I'm not saying what Jacob did was bad. It's just an analogy here. It's a contrast. One involved the efforts of humans. The other involved solely the effort of God. What more describes you with your trust? What care policy describes you? I hear people sometimes talk about the beauty of self-care and they got to focus on a season of self-care. It never sits right with me. Because at some point, the temptation becomes 
to make myself more than I should make of myself. I'm going to care for myself. Maybe you can say at the expense of something. I don't know. When people talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to have some self-care time, some self-care time. There's just something about it that flies in the face of what Jesus said. Deny yourself. I wonder from a Christian standpoint if the best self-care is self-denial. And I don't mean that to be a mic drop. I think the best self-care is self-denial because it's the care, it's the self, self-denial is what it takes to follow Jesus. Jesus, the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Jesus, who 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares upon him, not upon yourself. Yeah, I'm going to land that plane there. The best self-care is self-denial. Yeah. It doesn't make sense from, from a, a, a secular standpoint. From a secular standpoint, they're laughing and they're gnashing their teeth. Like, what are you talking about? You got to care for yourself. I'm not talking about going to the bathroom and taking care of your business. No, that obviously you've got personal cares you got to deal with throughout your day. You can't just eat whatever you want. You've got to, you know, take care. I'm not saying that. I'm thinking it from an ultimate standpoint. It's like, I am the master of my own ship or I am not the master of my own ship. Which is it? Am I in control of my destiny? Am I really the one in control of life? If so, then who is God? That's where Israel's at in our text today. Life is good for now. So who is God? They sacrificed a bull to Baal, and they sacrificed a lamb to Yahweh, and it's working out. They think they're getting away with it until the book of Hosea, where God points out this malarkey and says, I see you. I'm God. Don't you dare forget it. Last chance. Turn back. And yes, I love you as the wavered prostitute of a wife that you are. But in this love of mine, I'm giving you chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. Turn. Or my beloved, you're going to burn. We got to heed this. As Christians who belong to Christ, we don't apply it that way to us, but we have to heed it. Because the same attitude, the same issues can still be in our heart. Guilty. Chapter 13, 1 to 3. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, and he died. Ooh. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves no we're not talking about the bottom of your leg that gets really awesome and pumped up when you run 5k's no these are like golden calf calves yeah those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves it's as if they have their 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 idol and they're coming up and they're giving their worship they're kissing this Baal object of worship Baal is pictured as a bull so you can see Baal can have consorts as cows. You can have calves. Yes. So they come up 
human sacrifice? Really? Where's he going with that? Well, they came in that religion, they sacrifice babies. Molech, Moloch, yeah. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Bye-bye. The great irony here is there, uh, the fertility idol, Baal. Fertility is all about life, and life is all about crops. He was the agricultural fertile god. We worship Baal and we'll have a happy harvest. Everything will be great. We'll have life and life will be green. It'll be wonderful. The great irony is your fertility life idol actually brought you death, sucker. Here you are. And it's brought you death. He incurred guilt through Baal and died. You incur guilt through your worship? Sure you do. If you don't worship God. You incur guilt. The wages of sin is death, isn't it? And he died. Ouch. The exalted nation will come to nothing. That's it. This nation that with the Ephraim was such when he spoke, people trembled. And now they're going to be like smoke. Like on the threshing room floor, the chaff that just blows away. They, they take the winnowing fork and they winnow the, the, the grain up and the wind blowing through the threshing floor from the two doors, one at one side, one on the other side. And you have the wind blowing. The wind separates the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is useless. It's just maybe fire material and it blows it away. That's the picture here. You're now as a nation of worshipers, Useless. You're just like smoke. Done. The exalted nation will come to nothing. How does God handle deceit? Not very well. Studying this chapter tonight, you need to ask yourself, how are you being a deceiver? Maybe you're saying, well, nothing. I'm not. Good for you but keep it on your radar. If life and worship is more about you than it is about God, be very careful, especially when you're claiming it's more about God. Just be careful with that. We also need to remember. First Corinthians 11. What were some things we need to remember? Because he was telling this, remember we were told these things were recorded so that they would recall them. The nation's failures, this is, the, this is recorded for, to remember. Remember these things. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord when I passed on to you, this is Paul writing, but soon it's going to be Jesus speaking. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, the irony is we're not told once to celebrate Christmas, but we're commanded to remember Jesus and his body broken. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can argue that holiday we're supposed to, we're commanded by Christ to do would be Good Friday, Passover, Easter, that whole, that whole togetherness there. Remember. See, why do I mention this? If we remember the right things, it'll keep us on track. Because we don't want to fall into the pit that is Ephraim. We don't want to get into the where they're at. How do we not go there? Well, we remember the things we're supposed to remember. We remember Jesus. When we are caught in our sin. When we need to repent. It happens on a nightly basis for me. When I lose my temper or I say something I shouldn't. And I've got to backtrack. I remember my family and say, please forgive me. That was wrong. Daddy needs to handle himself differently. I have to recall Christ, his body broken, his blood shed. I have to recall that. 2 Peter 1, 5-9, for this very reason. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. You see, there's an element there where you can't for, you're not supposed to forget. Instead, you're supposed to remember. This remembering keeps you on target. Remembering the price that was paid for you. Remembering. Your calling, remembering the life in Christ you are to live, remembering you've got to take off the old self and put on the new self. Yeah. And you should be growing in your faith. There's a nice list there in 2 Peter 1. If you're doing those things, you would be hard pressed to be the selfish ones like Israel here. How about Ephesians 2 11 to 13? Therefore, remember. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once were far are now brought near. You who were once excluded, you have been reconciled by Christ. We have that hope. That hope only comes from verse 6, to repent, to hold fast in faith and await in trust, depending upon God like a little child, not being this manipulative scofflaw, doing your own thing. To get from there to here and to stay here, we must remember the things to remember.
This has been Big Rev from Hosea 11, 12, and 13. God bless. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.